You're listening to episode 138 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 17th of March 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. On the show today, we have actor, playwright and novelist Annie Domingo. But before we get to that, Steph, what else is happening in the National Centre for Writing land? Well, I'm currently sat in Dragon Hall in the office, actually, which is lovely. Yeah, and there's other people there with you as well. There are real, live other people who don't already live in my house nearby, which is very <laughs> exciting. Chris is in the office next door, so I'm having a very nice day indeed. And I'm mostly focused on our online writing courses that we run in partnership with the University of East Anglia. They're 12 or 24 week creative writing courses and they all begin on the 4th of May. But at the moment we're running an early bird offer for the 12 week courses. You can get 10% discount if you book before next Monday, which is the 22nd of March. Yeah, don't um, hang around. Yep, don't hang around. They do. It's all first come, first serve. So the classes are quite small. You get about 15 students per class, which makes for a really nice, friendly, intimate writing community. And you work with an experienced tutor and they take you through 12 or 24 weeks of online classes that you can study from anywhere in the world, from your home, from your work, as long as you've got a Wi-Fi or internet signal. And yeah, they're just, they're fantastic courses. We're running them this term in creative nonfiction, fiction, poetry, crime fiction, which is always a very popular course, and script writing as well. So head over to the website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and look under courses for premium tutor courses by UEA and make sure you sign up quickly because places do go very fast. Yeah, they've always been popular, but I think in lockdown they've really come into their own, which has it's been really handy being able to carry on doing this kind of stuff online. Mm. You look like you went off into this other place then. <laughs> I'm thinking of my millionaire shortbread Ooh. from Smoky Barn. I hadn't bought one and then I saw Peggy briefly because she came into the office to have a meeting with David and with her she had some millionaire shortbread from Smoky Barn and I was like, hmm. And then I thought about it for about an hour and then I went and got some. So you're slipping back into the expensive yeah, in-the-office tendencies of buying everything. I'm going to blow all my money the first month back. £500 on millionaire shortbreads. So on the podcast today, we have Annie Domingo, who was one of our Escalator writers back in 2019. And we caught up with Annie to see where she is at with her writing. Uh, her first book, Breaking the Marfa Chain, is out this year. And at the moment, we are fundraising for Escalator. So we always try to get 10 writers through the program, helping them kind of in the early stages of their career. Due to some funding shortfalls, we currently have places for six and we are fundraising to try and get that back up to 10. And it's going rather well, Steph. It is. It's going incredibly well. So as you mentioned, we need we need to fund four places for Escalator this year. And that comes to a total of around £8,000. And so far, we have raised just over £7,000. I think it's about £7,200, which is absolutely amazing. That's, well, I'm not going to try and do the maths, but it's probably like three writers and a leg, say something like that. Yeah, someone's going to have to learn to write with their leg. Yes, that is exactly what's going to happen. No, we're hoping we can we can afford the rest of their body and we will have all four places filled for Escalator this year. So we'd greatly appreciate it if you could help us cross that final milestone by donating to the scheme. You can head over to the website and click support us in the top bar. Another great way to give is by purchasing one of our All Shall Be Well 
screen prints, which is handmade, but it's an A5 print, handmade by Print to the People, who are a community printmaking studio in our very own Norwich. And um, the print is beautiful. It says, all shall be well, which is a very well-known saying by Julian of Norwich, who was based in an anchorite cell just across the road from Dragon Hall, actually. And the prints are £10 each, and all of that money goes towards the escalator scheme. So buy one for yourself, buy one for a friend. And as a thank you, we'll also pop a copy of our Walking Norwich chat book into the post with it. So yeah, you may have heard some of our podcasts a month or so back where we were talking to former Escalator writers about their particular journeys and how Escalator helped them. And today we are talking with Annie Domingo. So Annie was an Escalator in 2019 and her first book, Breaking the Martha Chain, is out this year and it's an amazing story. So it's about Sarah Forbes Benetta, who was born in the mid-19th century in West Africa, ended up being orphaned during some fighting, then was a slave to the King of Dahomey, and then was freed, and through a series of unlikely events, ended up in England as the goddaughter to Queen Victoria. What? What a story. It's quite remarkable. Uh, So Annie talks about uh, how she knew about this story, how she researched it, and why it was a tale she wanted to tell, and also how it kind of provided a route into examining not only the the plight of this character, but other black people at the time and women in general, and how there was a general lack of agency for women of any background at that time and how that kind of relates to the modern day as well. And he's also an actor uh, and a playwright and talks about how COVID has disrupted the whole theatre landscape over the last year, obviously with books, publishing had to kind of rethink itself slightly, but actually reading books is one of the one of the things that's been able to carry on kind of as it had before, really, although obviously it's been a terrible time for bookshops and, and physical high street shops, whereas obviously theatre has just been shut down for a year. So it's been very difficult, but some really interesting examples of how actors and writers have turned to online forms and even doing plays over zoom and that kind of thing the book sounds absolutely amazing it's, it's out later this year and i can't wait to read it so over to simon having a conversation with annie hi annie thank you for joining us on the podcast today thank you for asking me no problem so uh, congratulations again on uh, breaking the martha chain being published this year i think isn't it yes it's going to be published later on um, most probably in the autumn I'm in the middle of doing my first edit on it. Excellent. And you might even be able to get it into actual bookshops by then if they're back open again. Uh, I hope so. It's it's all very strange with um, bookshops. Well, not just the bookshops, with everything. So we just live in hope, you know, and see what happens. The the nice thing about it is that they are still uh, publishing books, maybe not in the same way or in the same numbers, but um, they are being published, so you just have to hope. What's different is that um, the launching and all of that is completely different, and how you get your books out there for people to know is is different. But you live in hope. Yes, absolutely. No, it seems seems that people are reading more more than ever at the moment. But uh, yeah, the actual launch experience. We've talked to a few authors who have had books come out over the last sort of eighteen months, and how it's been very peculiar. And you, know, you kind of you know, you're sat at home getting emails from your publisher, and you have to sort of believe them that the book exists almost <laughs> because you can't go somewhere to see it on a shelf. Yeah, strange, 
strange times that that the, the pleasure I've, I've got some friends who are authors and the pleasure you go when you walk into a bookstore and you see your book there that's one of the things especially new writers uh, look for and imagine when they could walk into a bookstore and see their book there that's an experience we're not getting no exactly it's that kind of it's that final concrete proof that you've actually yeah. done it isn't it yeah How's COVID and 2020 impacted on your work? Because as well as the book going through this, the publishing process, a lot of your work is around acting and theatre as well, which has presumably been massively impacted. It's been massively impacted because um, I was touring in Australia when um, this whole started. So last year, this time I was in, I was just about to go to Australia and um, in March, they ordered us all back home and we were going to come back and um, open. I was doing The Doctor with um, Juliet Stevenson and we were going to be opening in the West End at the Duke of York. So we came back and sort of everybody just hung fire thinking, well, it might be over in a few months, a couple of months or something. And then it's dragged on. And now that's gone by the by because nobody knows when the theatre is going to be open. However, um, I trained as a, as, a, as a drama teacher, English and drama teacher. So I've been very lucky in as much as um, I've been teaching last term at some St. Mary's University in London, in Twickenham. And earlier this year, we were supposed, I was supposed to be directing two groups in Macbeth. Um, but of course, there's no face to face and it's kind of difficult to do that if you are in training, I mean, it generally just becomes a reading. So change the syllabus and um, so that they had to do um, monologues and sonnets so they could do them on their own. Mm. And so I've been assessing that. And um, But I've been doing other bits and pieces, some Zoom plays. I directed a play by um, Walesha Yinka on, on Zoom, so that was good. And I did another play where I was a cast and um so at the moment i'm teaching creative writing on zoom and i'm going to go and um teach about black theater history at rada um starting in two weeks time and then um i'll be directing red velvet at rada so i'm keeping busy very busy in fact because in between all of that i have to edit my novel so so for me, COVID, there was a lull and then it's just picked up and um, working. But I would much rather be doing more theatre or television. Um, mm. So if I'm sitting in front of my computer, I sit uh, in front of my computer a lot because a lot of the teaching I'm doing now is on Zoom. So I don't get away from the computer. No, I think our whole lives are filtered through Zoom at the moment, aren't they? I know. We've got so many new languages, you know, you're on mute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And things like breakout rooms and things that I never thought I'd have to learn. It's been a good learning period, sort of trying to find out um, what new technology there is. Um, even Zencast, I'd never tried that before. So, yes, we're learning a whole lot of new tricks. Yes, exactly. It's kind of a, a simultaneous global forced skilling up, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. How does, uh, just you mentioned the Zoom plays, I was curious about whether those were written and created for that format in particular, or whether they were adapted from plays that were you know intended for the stage. 
Um, the ones that I've done were already written plays, um, and then we rehearsed um, on Zoom. So everybody's in their own place. In fact, um, one of the plays I was doing, some people were in America, somewhere in Nigeria. I think somebody was in Kenya or somewhere. So that's one of the, the, the joys um, of this pandemic and, and Zoom life, because you can get people together from different countries in a way that you couldn't have um, before if you were physically going to put it on. So, um, but there are plays that are being written precisely for Zoom. Um, I, I did one very early on. Um, and that's, that's different because they have in mind what they want, the authors. I haven't written one, um, but I am in the middle of written, writing a, a short a film, a 10-minute film. And so although it's not set in the period of COVID, um, I have to think about that as I'm writing the script because we'll be filming it during COVID. So, you know, you don't write any scenes where they're sort of coming close together and, and having a, a love interest. And you try some of the scenes, which I might have had indoors, I'm making sure are outdoors so that the people filming um, would be safe and, and things like that. So you have to take into account a whole lot of other things if you're going to be doing anything at the moment. I mean, I went to see a play done after the first lockdown, which was done out in a basketball court. And so it was spread out and it was out in the open. Um, and they had a play that was going to go on at the National, which was um, written by friends of mine. And um, it was just one person in the cast. Um, and they rearranged the Olivia Theatre and they opened one day and um, they had to lock down. So a lot of people with plays are really thinking about what's the best way or what to write and how to write it so that if you want it done during this period in time, you, you have to think about how the casting and the filming and all of that will be done, even if it's not set in, in this period of COVID. So it's, it's using all our brains in all sorts of different ways. Yes, exactly. I think 10 years from now, it's going to be really interesting to look back on material that was filmed and created during this time and yes. the, this sort of unusual staging and blocking that's going to have to have happened <laughs> yes. and how people kind of got around the limitations. It's, it's asking for a different kind of acting and different kind of ways of showing your emotions, especially if you if you're in a row or if you're in a loving relationship or if you're talking to your children and all sorts of relationship things uh, mostly have been affected. How do you show those in, a m in moments when you would have come close to somebody, you know, if they're upset, you can't come and give them a hug, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, moving on to uh, your book, and I was, I was just reading up on the subject matter of it, which is Sarah Forbes Benetta. Yes. This remarkable character um, and story that I, I wasn't aware of at all, um, and I just did a very, very cursory Wikipedia glance. But it sounds fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to checking out the book once it's available. But I was wondering how you first heard about her and uh, became interested in the story enough to want to actually write a book about it. Well, um, although I was born in England, um, my parents were from Sierra Leone, and I grew up. I went to school in Sierra Leone before I came back. And in Sierra Leone, she's, she's, she was well known, but people didn't really 
talk about her that much. You sort of just know. Um, and I knew um, relatives of hers, descendants of hers, um, some of them quite quite closely. And um, she's some of her descendants are vaguely um, uh, related to my relations. So I, I'm not related to her as such, but, you know, marriage through marriage and so on. So you, you mm. get to know about her. And her great-grandson, who now lives in England, um, was a very close friend of my parents, so I called him uncle. Um, so when I started looking uh, and I wanted to write about Sierra Leone and that, um, I started thinking about whose story I wanted to tell. And um, it actually, this started way back when I was doing my master's at, um, at Anglo Ruskin. Uh, I did my master's in creative writing. And I started the idea of actually one character, um, which was her sister. Um, now, the story, this is fiction, so people have got to understand that it's fiction, because um, what we know about Sarah's early life is that she, um, there was a raid on her, on her village. Um, she was the daughter of a chief. Her parents were killed. She had siblings, but nobody knows exactly what happened to her siblings. I wanted to show what, it, what kind of a life she would have had before she became a slave. So the first part of the book is set in their village. And because she was very young when she was captured, she was only about four, I did not feel that she would have the ability to tell the story of that life. Um, so um, I, I got her um, a, a sister because she did have siblings. And we could see their lives through the older sister and through their capture. Um, and I wanted to show what was happening then and how different it was, but that simultaneously the slave trade was still going on. So um, the, the novel is told in two parts, uh, from two points of view, from Sarah's point of view and from her sister's point of view. Um, we don't see the sister is taken to... Um, America as a slave and um, but Sarah her name was changed to Sarah was brought to England and as a princess and for me what was fascinating was to look at the lives of these two girls who started off the same and ended up so separate and so different and um, what would their lives have been like and what would their thoughts have been like um, Sarah comes to England when she was eight um, and she got to be very close to um, Queen Victoria. And I wanted to look at that Victorian period um, of this black girl who was um, treated as very high class and visited Windsor and Buckingham Palace and um, went to Isle of Wight to stay with the royal family, was invited to um, the princess's weddings and so on. There must have been a relationship, and, and that's what I was looking at. Um, Breaking the Mafia Chain um, looks at the first year that Sarah was here. And and she, after a year, she's sent back to um, Sierra Leone um, because she she was ill. Or they felt that the, the weather in England wasn't, wasn't good for her. So she, she went back. And I wanted to think of how um, worried she would have been that she'd been brought out, given this wonderful life, and she was going to be sent back to where to an area, not the same place where she was captured, but to an area where there was still 
um, slavery going on and people were still being captured. Um, there is a sequel to Breaking the Mafia Chain, and that's what I was working on when we when I was at Escalator, which is Omenera, which looks at Sarah when she comes back to England um, and until she gets married. So Breaking the Mafia Chain is the, is the, the first one. It's a complete in itself, but um, we will learn more about Sarah in Omenera, which I've had to put by the by at the moment because I'm doing the editing on Breaking the Mafia Chain. <laughs> yes, I didn't realise that Omenera was a sequel and a continuation of the story, actually. I was going to ask you about the second novel. Yes. Um, oh, they, they're both standalone books. You can... You'd be able to read Omenera without having um, read the first one, but it's sort of for me. It was such a big um, story, and I was passionate about having the bit in Africa um, told that story told. That it would it would be too big a book to have in one go, and I wanted to do Sarah justice and not try to cram everything in because she had quite an amazing life when she came back. Um, she, she, she lived in, in London, then she lived in Kent, and then she lived in Brighton and went to, and got married in Brighton. So, um, and all of these, and for me, I love the research. And um, so um, I went and walked the streets of where she would have lived in England. I went uh, in London, I went to Windsor, I went to Brighton and so on because I feel that I needed to get into her world, her space. What, what are the things she would have seen or smelt or heard? Um, yes, it'd be different now, but it, the buildings are mostly the same and so on. The streets are mostly the same. So it was um, merging all those stories and research into, into Sarah's lifestyle, her, her possible thoughts and so on. Yeah. How did you go about kind of translating all that research into the story that you're telling? Because you were saying, you know, this is a, it's a, a fictional retelling of it and you've uh, had to, you know, introduce various characters to, to tell that story. So how did you kind of tread the balance of what was fact and what was fiction? Well, I think it's getting the research, understanding what it means, and then seeing how that um, translates into your story. So, um, for example, I spent a lot of time reading Queen Victoria's diaries, um, and you get a lot of information from it. And for me, one of the things was that um, people have this, this story that's out there about Queen Victoria not liking children, and um, sort of, yes, you made remarks about babies who were ugly and stuff like that. But when you read her, her diaries in detail, you start seeing um, somebody who's different. Um, that yes, she was quite strict with the children and so on, but they were not sort of just kept in the, in the nursery. They were, they were um, around. She talks about them playing under her desk while she's working on some papers. She, there are times when she talks about them going for walks and um, going ice skating together. But the thing that sort of really got me going on trying to work out her relationship, Sarah's relationship with Queen Victoria, is that in her diary, she says um, on November the 11th, which was her son's birthday, 
we came back and met with um, my black goddaughter. Um, and that was the first time. And she talks a little bit about her. But as you re re read her diaries, in early January, she has in one of her um, entries, oh, today I saw my black godchild for the fourth time. And I thought, you know, if she's seen them in November and in January, she's seen her, seeing her for the fourth time. There must have been a relationship, you know. She must have wanted to, to see this girl or to know about her. And so that was one of the first things. How then do you make sure that you, you um, show that relationship growing? So what were the other two times which I did not, could not find in her diaries that she'd seen? What happened then? And so you start getting an idea from reading around it and finding other things that they did and things that were said. And I read a lot of um, biographies of Queen Victoria. So uh, you start getting an idea. And I wanted to find out what um, Victorian England was like at that time and what were black people doing and how were they living. So I did a lot of research on that as well. And I wanted to show how um, in, in the book, um, her, her sister comes to England eventually. Um, and I wanted to show um, the kind of life that she came and she was she didn't come as a slave. She, they were told everybody was told that she was a maid. Um, so what would it be like for her to see this life that black people were living in when she knows and she knows she's a slave? She's not a, a maid. She couldn't just leave. Um, and at the same time, you had Sarah living this life and looking. And I've got some times where they are in the same area, the same place. At, this, uh, um, at the same time, and but they're seeing completely different things or their feelings are completely different. And I wanted that dichotomy that was happening all the time through the book. Yeah, Sarah's experience must have been vastly different to the, the general experience of black people at that time. Exactly. And I wanted to not just concentrate on what Sarah's experience. All the time I was mindful of um, what other black people in in England at that time were... were um, suffering or living because um i i found out that queen victoria had very definite views about the slave trade as did prince albert um prince albert's first solo um speech was about the abolishing uh, abolishment of, of slavery and the the ships that um queen victoria had parading up and down the west coast of Africa to stop the slave um, trade going on because that was illegal. So there were lots of things that were involved in that. Um, and I know that um, sort of in the late 1700s, uh, less than 100 years before, a lot of black people who had been in England had been taken to Freetown, to Sierra Leone. Um, and they, were, they used to be called the Black Poor. But there were still some black people um, in England, in London, in, in all around England. And there were quite a lot of ex-slaves or runaway slaves who were in um, England, who were going around um, giving talks, um, trying to get people to give money to help free slaves and that. So there was all that going on. And yet in the middle of that, you had this black girl that was being called the African princess. 
and there was a lot of things written about her in the in the newspapers of the time. So I spent a lot of time going to through archives and finding out things that were said about her, where she was mentioned, and so on. And I just wanted to. I just thought about what would the black people who were living there think when they saw or heard about this African princess who was living this other life. And I wanted those two stories to be going on at the same time um, for, for just us to just have a thought about what it would have been like. And the fact that we talk a lot about um, the slave histories and slave stories, but there were black people living in England, not necessarily in the same sort of social strata as Sarah, but who were living their own lives who um, there was quite a good community of black people in in England. Um, so what were their lives like? We, we were not all slaves. And um, Sarah was sort of the shining beacon of what black Victorian could be like. Very few people reached that status, but it's that where you could go to and what was in between that I wanted to show. Yeah, sounds like a, a really rich kind of melting pot stuff particularly because it's such a period of transition and then Sarah's experience I mean Sarah's experience you know almost makes me think of you know like a, a Disney story of someone you know being taken out of their situation and raised up to be a princess and all this kind of stuff but it's happening in the surroundings of this quite tumultuous time yes I mean and for me you know I wanted to show that although she was being treated as a princess and all of that in a way she was more a slave than her sister <laughs> because she had, partly because she was a child, but partly because of what was happening around her. She had no choice. She had no choice about when she was put on a ship and brought to England. She had no choice when they decided to send her back to Africa. You know, so whereas um, and in that time, she lost her language. She lost her identity. She lost her um her culture because she was so young whereas her sister who was a slave was able to hold on to her language because she was older and although she was a slave um had um personal um freedom inside of her and it's that's the thing i wonder who who is a slave what makes us a slave it's not just a physical thing it's also an emotional thing and for for me i'm sure that sarah all the time was looking and wanting to find her sister and just to find other black people who were like her in this golden globe that she was in. Yeah, so on on the surface, it appears that she's, you know, managed to get into this, you know, luxurious position of privilege, but actually in terms of her own agency, there's there's very little there. Yes, and, and the thing is that you've got to think about that the, the, the people, the class of people that she was mixing with, the women did not have very much choice, you know, in their way, they were bound by certain um, things that they had to do. They, they did not always have um, complete choice in who they married or the kind of people that they met. They had to live certain, a certain kind of lifestyle. They had to do certain things. Um, so they were constrained in a different way. They might look um, really well off and they had this wonderful life. But there were lots of constraints on them as well. And that um, was where Sarah was living. Uh, although she had more constraints on her uh, because of 
her start, but she was living in an environment where there was a lot of constraints for all women. Yeah, and when you applied for Escalator, because you went through the program in 2019, yeah. I think, 2018, 2019, yeah. um, what stage was the book at when you first applied? Um, Breaking the Mafia Chain was finished, but it was like the first uh, um, draft. <laughs> so, although I say finished, it has changed enormously since then. <laughs> um, first of all, it needed, it was quite a, a large book. <laughs> so I needed to do some heavy um, cutting and tightening. Um, but when I joined Escalator and I had the wonderful Yvette Edwards as my mentor, um, we talked about it and I said, well, I outlined what the sequel was going to be about. So I wanted to start working on that because I needed somebody to um, help me, to mentor me on what shape that book could be so that it's it's able to be a standalone book, but yet um, is related to breaking the mafia chain because I did not think that um, in whilst I was doing Escalator that I, um, a mentor for the first for breaking the mafia chain would seem like um, I knew what I had to do with breaking the mafia chain. I needed somebody to help me with the second book. So that's what we worked on um, mostly with uh, some reference to breaking the mafia chain. But I wanted it to be completely um, a book on its own. So, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned in the case study that we have uh, on you on the website that Escalator helped with your confidence as a writer. Um, and I was wondering, because you'd already you know, written the first book, in, albeit in first draft form, like at what stage were you back then in terms of how you regarded your own writing? Well, <laughs> exactly that. I needed somebody who would give me the confidence to, first of all, I had done nothing about sending I'm breaking the mafia chain anywhere. This was just something that was started. I, I started it as um, my final thesis for my master's and then put it by and uh, was persuaded by some friends to enter the Lucy Cavendish competition. And and so I did that. Um, at, the, at the 11th hour, I think I, I don't live too far from Cambridge, I drove to Cambridge with my entry because um, it, I think we finished at, uh, at 12 midday and I got there at 11.40. It was that close. Um, and still not very confident and was really um, amazed and very happily shocked that it got shortlisted. And uh, that um, that was when I started thinking, well, maybe I do have something. I've been writing but not, not done anything much with it. I've written, even as a child, for my brothers and little stories for my children and so on. But all of a sudden I thought, you know, maybe this is something that I can do. And so it was after that that I'm, I decided to apply for Escalator. We actually escalated. Um, I'd applied before and didn't get through. So uh, this was the second time I applied for Escalator. Um, and... Um, that was not by then I'd been working on making breaking the mafia chain because it was something that I was passionate about and I wanted to to finish it so when I got into escalator I thought well I've got this now let's see where I can progress with it 
I already had um, mapped out the idea for the second book, and I and I decided maybe that was what I was going to to work on, and it gave me the confidence to say yes, I can finish this one and I can write the next one, um, because I'm one of the the older people, so for me it was a great achievement to be able to do that um, when you're almost seventy. And you had the outline. For the second book, yes. um, so in in talking and working with a vet, how did that help in terms of sort of shaping it and and then starting to to get the words down? Um, she was able to make me see that I I didn't want to repeat the same style as the first book because it's a different book, but at the same time I needed to know that there is some kind. It's not so different that um, it looks like a completely. Um, different subjects and person and so on so it needed to marry but be separate and she was she was great at me sort of writing whatever um numbers of uh, um what we'd worked out that i'd work on and then giving it to her and for her to be able to pick it out and to spread it and she was able to help me with sort of language i tend to overwrite <laughs> you know <laughs> which is why um i had uh, to cut out uh, um, quite a few thousand words from breaking the macro chain. <clears throat> so she was able to get me to focus on what is it I want to say and then how am I going to say it? Because I tend to do, a, as I said, do a lot of research. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then um, sort of overwrite. Another big aspect of Escalator is the fact that you're going through it with other writers as well. And of course, back when you did it, we, we were actually able to meet other people still and meet in person. Um, how did how did that element of you know being in a cohort of other people? That was absolutely fantastic. It really was because you could share with other people, listening to their fears and what what their constraints. And knowing that you were all more or less at the same level of sort of having written some things. Um, some people had never written anything much, but you were all at this point where you wanted to move your writing career further on. And the beautiful thing about it is that we're all still in touch. In fact, we had we had a, a Zoom meet um, where what, seven of us met last week. And so we keep in touch. Um, and we find out, uh, you know, um, John's book is uh, it's being sold and it's going to be published next year. And somebody else's book was um, being looked at. Somebody else had just hadn't gotten agents and so on. So we, we share our news and um, sometimes things that we're writing, we'd send to each other and say, could you have a look at this? Um, one, one of the girls is sending us one of her chapters today um we tell each other about competitions uh, that we've heard of or that we're entering um so when i was going to enter something at the bath flash fiction um last year i sent it to them and said have a look and uh, you know things came back about what they thought um and i sent um part of omenera to um the dyslexia um, it's got long, whatever, long listed, mm. short listed. So again, that gave me the confidence to, Escalator has given me the confidence to say, you know, I can enter competitions even if I don't win them. 
at least it makes me focus. And with the other people in the group, you have people that you can talk to about where you are at. And sometimes we, we're entering the same competitions together. So that's a lot of support. It may, you become a, 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 a writing family, which is, which is fantastic. And that's one of the best things I got from Escalator as well. Yvette and, and the group uh, uh, were my gift from Escalator. Lovely. Yeah, because that's something that as writers, we don't get that for free um, in terms of prose writing. Because, you know, if you're working in film or TV or theatre or anything like that, you inevitably have a team of people working on the project. So there's other people involved in the thing itself. Whereas, yeah, writing, we're at home, at our desks, writing on our own, particularly at the moment when (laughs) we can't even go out. Um, So I think Escalator kind of generating that community is is a critical part of it yes and I, and I think that what happened that's one of the things that i've learned is that um we we're not um we don't give ourselves the time even when we say we're at home working um i'm at home working but you sort of listen out for the telephone you listen out for the postman when you go away we we don't have any radio or television on nothing it's just to write Exactly. Um, and, you know, Escalator is a regional scheme that operates in the east of England. I yeah. was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of regional schemes like Escalator and other ones around the country, you know, where they operate outside of London and support people in specific areas of the country and how important that is. I think that is so important. I, I think that it means that um, you can concentrate within your area and you don't have to um, fight for with everybody. I mean, there's so many competitions and so on where you have it worldwide and so on. To have one, and also being able to build up that family of writers within your area. Uh, I mean, it's like with Escalator and, as I say, um, the group that I met, we're all living around, and we could, if it wasn't for um, COVID and all of that, meet up. Whereas if you're in a general um, big competition, you don't necessarily will see any of the people um, ever after. Um, I won a place at uh, Hedgebrook in Seattle to, to write, and I went there for a month to write. And that was, again, wonderful. But I've not seen any of those people since I left because they were mostly Americans and so on. We haven't even kept in touch that much. We get in touch now and again. There was not that feeling of community of my family around me which I get with Escalator and I think that's partly because it's concentrated within a certain area and you understand what those people are going through and how their lives are in that particular um, region. I think it's a fantastic idea. Well Annie thank you so much for your time today and congratulations again on Breaking the Marfa Chain that's out later this year. Yes. According to my publishers, uh, it's going to come out in the autumn. They haven't given me a specific date yet because everybody's very um, wary of putting definite dates on anything at the moment, yeah. the way things are. But I'm, I'm, re- I'm really thrilled that uh, Jacaranda are going to, do, to publish it because I think they're a fantastic um, publishing company. And I, uh, um, they, they're black uh, um, publishing company and they uh, um, Valerie really understood where I was coming from with wanting to look at the two stories simultaneously and how they were living different lives so I'm very 
very thrilled that um, Jacaranda decided to publish it. Excellent. Well, as and when it appears, I would I would definitely be giving it a read. So thank you again for coming on today. Not at all. And thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Annie for being on the show. If you've got any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre or on Facebook. And you'll find all of the information about our programmes and our online writing courses that we spoke about earlier at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And don't forget to come and find us and say hello on our Discord channel as well, which you can find a link down to that in the show notes. Just click on it and you'll be able to join and start chatting with other writers from around the world. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation to us by visiting the website and clicking the support us button. Please do review the podcast if you get a chance and don't forget to subscribe or follow using your favourite podcast app so that you don't miss future episodes. We have some very good ones coming up in the next month or so. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you next week. <laughs>